6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his conclusion of this exciting study through the whole Bible. When you finish the Old Testament, the one thing you're hit with is that there are unexplained ceremonies left, sacrificial rituals that are not explained. You have unachieved purposes. You have all these covenants. What for? Some are conditional, some unconditional. You have unappeased longings. The poetical books are full of things they're yearning for that have yet to be fulfilled. And the prophecies, of course, are incomplete. It's important to really taste and appreciate the fact that the Old Testament is incomplete by itself. There's something missing. And what's missing, of course, is the New Testament. Jesus challenges you in John 5, 39. He says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And he's referring to the Old Testament to them when he's, talk, when he's saying that. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of what? Me. That's his boast. And indeed they do. And when you discover that for yourself, it'll change your whole perspective. We talked a little bit about the history of the English Bible, how the Hebrew Verlaga became translated into Greek, the Septuagint Greek. The Council of Yamnia led to the Masoretic text, but meanwhile the Greek text primarily, and some, some of the old Latin stuff led to the Textus Receptus, which Jerome rendered into the Vulgate, and ultimately the Textus Receptus becomes the primary set of documents for the King James. The King James translators, uh, just like Tyndale, they had about 5,000 different manuscripts. They leaned heavily on the so-called the, the received text, as they say. But the problem was that the Alexandrian texts, which were highly venerated for some reasons, led to many of the new translations, NIV and others. But in more recent years, they recognized the Alexandrian texts were uh, tampered with by the Gnostics which is causing many scholars to go back and respect more highly the, the Texas Receptus sources. But uh, we talked a little bit about that. We don't have to dwell on it here. We got to the New Testament. Again, it has five books up front, just like the Torah does in the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Luke in two volumes, Luke and Acts. But instead of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' epistles, we have Paul's 13 epistles plus eight so-called Hebrew Christian epistles. Well, one, I believe, by Paul, and then the others that are written by and for the Jewish believers. James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. And having gone through all that, then, of course, we hit our capstone, the book of Revelation, which wraps it all up in a climactic form. But the Old Testament prophecies that are quoted in the Gospels are astonishing. That, it, that the Messiah would be of David's family, He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd sojourn in Egypt. He would live in Galilee and in, specifically in Nazareth. He'd be announced by an Elijah-like herald. He would occasion the massacre of Bethlehem's children. He would proclaim a jubilee to the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. 
the secret that we're going to talk about is not the role of the Gentiles. It's something else. Many people misunderstand the fact that his mission would include the Gentiles is all through Isaiah and other places. His ministry would be one of healing. He would teach throughout parables. He would be disbelieved and rejected by his rulers. That was predicted in Psalm 69 and 118 and Isaiah 6, 29 and elsewhere, 53. He would make a triumphal entry in Jerusalem, in fact, riding a donkey, Zechariah tells us. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be smitten like a shepherd. He'd be given vinegar and gall. They would cast lots for his garments. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. He would die among malefactors, other criminals. His... Uh, Dying words were foretold. He would be buried by a rich man. He would rise from the dead on the third day. That's all through the scripture. His resurrection would be followed by destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, on it goes. So it's amazing. Now when we get to the Gospels, we discovered and we talked about how they're structured. That Matthew, being a Jew, presents, emphasizes his presence as a Messiah that uh, Mark, his emphasis is that he's a servant, so he has no genealogy, no pedigree. Matthew has a genealogy starting from the first Jew, from Abraham down through the legal line. Luke, being a doctor, focuses on him as the son of man, his humanity. His genealogy starts with Adam, and he goes down through the bloodline, which turns out to be Mary. And John has a genealogy, but it's hard to recognize because he's a son of God. He has a genealogy of the pre-existent one. Matthew emphasizes what Jesus said, very Jewish. Mark, what he did. Luke, what he felt. John, who he was. Characteristically, Matthew ends with a very Jewish thing, the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends up with a promise of the Holy Spirit, which sets him up for his sequel, the book of Acts. John closes his book with a promise of his return, and he sets up his sequel book of Revelation. And uh, they also, interestingly enough, exemplify the four faces we see around the throne of God, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, as symbols of the Messiah, the servant, the son of man, son of God. Interesting enough. Well, the book of Acts, of course, had all the many key facts, the ascension, the, pen, the, the birth of the church, the first uh, martyr, the stoning of Stephen. Philip and the Ethiopian treasure, which has uh, 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 secrets to it that are still being revealed. And then uh, we have the call of Saul of Tarsus. Both Sauls in the Bible were Benjamites, but this Saul becomes Paul and becomes the, uh, an incredible human being. One of the most brilliant people to walk the earth. Peter's vision at Cornelius opens the gospel to the Gentiles, something that was unthought of in some respects, became a big controversy for a while. The mission of the Gentiles is really focused on in chapters 11 to 14 in Acts, climaxing in the famous Council for Jerusalem, in which uh, James by then has become a believer and a leader of the church there, and that gets resolved. And then we get into the missionary journals, journeys, three of them. The first throughout Galatia, the second one uh, uh, to Europe, Athens, Mars Hill, the third one recounting the first one just to strengthen those churches. As Acts comes to a close, we have the growing outcry against Paul before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, before King Agrippa, where Paul finally plays his trump card. He appeals to Rome. That brings him to Rome, in which much is accomplished, interestingly enough, primarily because of the letters Paul wrote while he was there treasures, every one of them. Pauline epistles, uh, 
It's so important we took Romans, it took a full hour on Romans because the definitive statement of Christian doctrine, the gospel according to Paul, as some people would call it. But then we went through the others, First and Corinthians, order in the church, Galatians, law versus grace, Ephesians, the mystery of the church. It was Paul's privilege to reveal something that was hidden in the Old Testament. He makes that point. And many people who have a problem in eschatology, the study of the last things, the real problem is that they haven't done their homework about ecclesiology. They don't understand what makes the church distinctive from all other periods of history. Believers that uh, are members of the church have privileges and aspects that were not available for the Old Testament or those that are or after the rapture. There's a very strange set of benefits that we have we need to understand. Philippians, of course, is resources in suffering. Colossians, Christ's preeminence about all things. Thessalonians are the eschatological epistles. We left those for the next for the final session, next to the final session, to be part of an eschatological review. And then T Timothy and Titus be uh, basically uh, letters to pastors. Second Timothy is particularly remarkable. It's Paul's last letter, and Paul is about to die. He knows he is, and he's encouraging Timothy. I think it sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? Incredible guy, incredible letter. And just precious, precious letters. And Philemon is a little gem, a little tiny gem, explaining intercession. It's almost like a miniature. I always think of every art gallery has somewhere in there, no matter how many great things they have, they always have room for some little special miniature. And Philemon is, is that sort of treasure. Then the, uh, the non-Pauline epistles that are sometimes looked at are the Hebrew Christian epistles. Uh, starts with Hebrews. It's unsigned. I believe it was written by Paul, but that's neither here nor there. It really emphasized the New Covenant. It makes an argument for the Messiahship of Christ without relying on his apostolic position, strictly with rabbinical arguments from the Old Testament, contrasting the Messiah with angels, the Levitical priesthood, uh, all, the, all the contrasts. In each case, laying out how Christ is preeminent over all of those things. James, his brother, writes a letter that's very practical. If you've got faith, let's see it demonstrated. Many people misunderstand his epistle. I think he's talking about faith with works. He says, no, no, he, if you have faith, he expects to see it demonstrated by works. You're not saved by faith. You're sa I mean, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith. But if you have real faith, it should be bearing fruit. So he's a fruit inspector. First Peter's focusing on the persecuted church. Second Peter's is focusing on the coming apostasy, just as Jude will. Very important epistles today, very descriptive of today. John's epistle is one of those masterpieces. John's first John is um, really sermon notes on love. Incredible, incredible letter. Second John is a surprise to many because I believe you can prove it was written to Mary. But it, one of the subjects it touches on are false teachers. Third John is just a short little letter having to do with the preparation of helpers. And Jude is a fascinating final little letter on apostasy, but it includes so many allusions. It gives us illumination of all kinds of issues beyond the ones that we, he was making directly. In the Old Testament, we have Christ in prophecy, which says, Behold, He comes. The Gospels. 
as Christ in history, behold, he dies. Acts as Christ in the church, it says in effect, behold, he lives. The epistles are Christ in experience, behold, he saves and sanctifies. And the apocalypse is Christ coming in glory, behold, he reigns. So that's the build-up. And of course, the divine outline of the last book of the Bible is in verse 19 of the first chapter. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's the vision of Christ that, shows, that opens the first chapter. The things which are, which are seven letters of seven churches that we reviewed in some, in some depth. Chapters 2 and 3, the most important chapters for you and me probably in the book. And the things which shall be metatauta hereafter, the things which follow after those things which, which, which were the churches. So that's the divine outline. And we talked about the seven letters, and we were intrigued how they parallel the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13. We also, uh, uh, the sower and the four soils, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the fruit of the, the apostolic period. We have uh, Pergamos and the mustard seed, where the mustard seed grows to be a tree that even becomes a, a haven for the birds, which were the enemies of Satan in the earlier parables. Thyatira, the woman of the leaven, Thyatira having the Jezebel and the false doctrine. Uh, the uh, Philadelphia, the pearl of great price, how Philadelphia is the, the church that was raptured, the pearl of great price being a very strange idiom for a Jewish rabbi to use to Jewish disciples, because uh, oysters are not kosher. But the pearl is a jewel that is a response to irritation, that it grows by accretion, and is removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. A very apt description of the church, interestingly enough. Anyway, each one of these parallels are instructive to consider for yourself. Check them out, see what you think. It's also interesting to know that Paul wrote seven churches. He wrote 13 signed epistles, but three of those were doubles, first and second, whatever. Well, Ephesus is pretty straightforward. Paul's caution to Ephesus was certainly heeded by Ephesus by the time Jesus writes. The only trouble was they had lost their first love. Smyrna is the, the suffering church, and of course Philippians is rejoice, resources in suffering. Pergamos was a church that married the world, and that of course is idiomatic of Corinthians. Thyatira, Galatians, Sardis, Romans, Philadelphia, Thessalonians, the eschatological church and the eschatological epistles, and Laodicea and Colossians, and Colossians was indeed the remedy for Laodicea, and they happened to be suburbs of one another. So they instructed to exchange letters. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, is there something to that? You can only find out by studying yourself and coming to your own conclusions. These are just observations that, uh, for your consideration. But it's interesting that these seven letters of seven churches are interesting in that they um, are not only local real churches, not only are they advice for all churches, but they're also advice personally, in a, a personal homiletic sense. But they're also prophetic. In the order they happen to be placed, the main theme of each one fits church history. Ephesus was the apostolic church, um, diligent on doctrine, but ultimately failed to, to stay devotionally committed. Smyrna was the persecuted church, the suffering church. Smyrna means myrrh, if you will. And Pergamos was the married church, the one that had this perverted marriage, the, one, marrying the, the, the church married the world.
big mistake. Which led, of course, to the medieval church in which you have the Queen of Heaven running things, you have inquisitions, the whole description of Tyre Tyre is astonishingly descriptive of the medieval church, out of which, of course, comes a Reformation, but really denominationalism. And Sardis is one of the two letters that has nothing good said about it. And Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two letters that had nothing bad said about it. Four of the letters were, all of them were surprised, I suspect, but two of them had nothing good said about them, two of them had nothing bad said about them. So I think there's a real lesson here. I think all of us, if we really understood, would be surprised. Philadelphia, of course, the missionary church, it's one of the ones that had nothing bad said about it, very encouraging. And Laodicea was the apostate church. What's interesting about these seven letters is the first three have the promise to the overcomer as a postscript. And the last four have the promises of the overcomer in the body of the letter. So they're distinctive in that sense. The other, also, these last four include explicit references to the Lord's second coming, interestingly enough. One of them, Thyatira, is promised to be that it will go into the Great Tribulation. That's a disturbing event. One of them is promised that it would not see the time of trial or tribulation that's coming on the earth. What happens to Sardis and Laodicea is problematical. So I guess it'll depend on the individuals, of course. So anyway, uh, we then went to a review of eschatology in our summary. Amillennialism, premillennialism, we pointed out that your view of eschatology will really derive from your hermeneutics. If you have a very tight hermeneutic, if you have a very high view of inspiration, if you take the Bible very literally, you will lean to the right side of this diagram. You'll tend to be premillennial for sure, and very likely pre-tribulational. That is, you'll believe that the, that the church will be pulled out before the tribulation begins. There are many uh, uh, people who are premillennial, but they try to be post-tribulational. They think that the church is going to go through the tribulation. And it's our view that that has too many problems. But in any case, if you have a willingness to allegorize, if you treat these things just symbolically, if you treat the Bible as just a collection of instructive lessons rather than any uh, hard truth, you'll tend to be uh, to the left side of this diagram. You'll tend to be amillennial, as most churches are, most denominations are amillennial and post-tribulational. Uh, the ultimate form of amillennialism is preterism. You see, many Christian leaders are saying, well, it's all, been, it's all was fulfilled long ago because they don't have a willingness to take the, the Scripture tightly. We believe God means what He says and says what He means. Well, we talked about the whole, the 70th week of Daniel on that, on that fabric. We point out that the 70th week is defined by the covenant being enforced by this world leader. In the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to violate that covenant by setting himself up to be worshipped. And uh, that triggers a three-and-a-half-year period that is labeled by Jesus himself as the Great Tribulation. And that is interrupted, of course, by the Second Coming. And then, of course, he sets up his his kingdom. The dilemma comes among many. When does the rapture take place? Many feel, well, it comes near the end. They don't discern the difference between the rapture and the second coming. We think that discernment is very clear in the Scripture, which causes us to look at one of the other places. We, we tend to have the view, it doesn't mean we're right, but we, have, we believe that the, the rapture will occur prior to the beginning of the seventh week, maybe by some distance. We don't know if the interval between the rapture and the, the beginning of the seventh week is a day or 30 years, but 
we think there is an interval there because the Antichrist can't be identified, he can't be, let's back up, the seventh week is defined by a treaty enforced by this world leader. He can't enforce that treaty until he's in power. He can't be in power until after he's revealed, and he can't be revealed until the rapture. So if the rapture comes first, he then gets revealed and comes to power, that could be one day or it could be 30 years, we don't know. But in any case, uh, that's, that's where we are. Now there are some people who are sort of in between pre and post. They call themselves mid-trib, meaning the tribulation isn't really, is really three and a half years, not seven, but some people use, speak of a seven-year tribulation to, to, as a connotative term. And uh, the mid-trib guys understand they, that uh, they will be out before the abomination of desolation. These other views, both mid and post, deny, have to end up denied eminency. Clearly, the New Testament teaches to expect him at any moment, which is an argument for pre-tribulationism. So that's, that's at least the profile that many have. The apocalypse, of course, is uh, a catastrophic end crisis of the present time we're in. I believe we're plunging into that. We're going to see the uh, spectacular reappearance of the King of Kings in his global empire. We're going to see the internment of Satan in the Abuso and the millennial earth reign of Jesus Christ, that both the Old and New Testament are full of. Then we'll, at the end of that thousand years, we'll see a final insurrection and the abolition of sin. That's when it finally gets wrapped up and we'll see a new heaven and a new earth. That's sort of the quick summary of the book of Revelation in total. Something that else, as we stand back from our studies and try to put this all in perspective, let's take a look at Genesis first Revelation. In Genesis, the earth was created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis, we had the sun to govern the day. In Revelation, we have no need for the sun. The darkness he called night in Genesis, there is no night there in Revelation. Waters he called the seas, there is no more sea in Revelation, interestingly enough. A river for the earth's blessing, and a river for the new earth in, Genesis, in Revelation. In Genesis, we have the earth's government, that is, through Israel. In Revelation, we're going to see the earth's judgment. One's the earth's government, one's the earth's judgment in terms of Israel. Man in God's image in Genesis, man headed by Satan's image shows up in Revelation. The entrance of sin is in Genesis, the end of sin is in Revelation. The curse is pronounced in Genesis, there is no more curse in Revelation. Death enters in Genesis 3, there is no more death in Revelation. Man is driven out of Eden in Genesis 3. Man is restored in Revelation 22. The tree of life is guarded in Genesis. The right to the tree of life is reestablished in Revelation 22. Sorrow and suffering enter in, in uh, Genesis 3. There is no more sorrow in Revelation 22. Nimrod founds Babylon in Genesis 10. Babylon falls in chapter 17 and 18. God's flood destroys evil generation in Genesis. Satan's flood tries to destroy the elect generation in Revelation 12. There's a bow, a token of, of God's promise in Genesis 9. There's a bow for remembrance in Revelation 4 and 10. Sodom and Egypt represent corruption and judgment in Genesis 13. Sodom and Egypt, that is Jerusalem. Uh, show up in Revelation 11, representing those things. A confederation is against Adam's people in Genesis 14. A confederation is against Adam's seed in Revelation 12. 
There's a bride for Abraham's son in Genesis 24. There's a bride for Abraham's seed in Revelation 21, marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the first Adam occurs in Revelation 2. The marriage of the last Adam occurs in Revelation 19. Man's dominion ceases and Satan's begun in Genesis 3.24. Satan's domain ends and man is restored in Revelation 22. So it's I mentioned this as you stand back. You can tell it's all designed on purpose. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. One book. There are two basic discoveries we've tried to emphasize in this excursion. That the Bible, although it consists of 66 separate books penned by over 40 guys over a period of several thousand years, is an integrated message system. Not only the themes, every word, every place name, even the mathematical structures that hide underneath the text demonstrate a very, very skillful integrated design. If that's true, you got a second discovery. You can then demonstrate that the origin of this message had to come from outside our dimensions of space-time. You can demonstrate. You can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can. If you can demonstrate the integrity of the design in the first place, and then demonstrate that that design had to emerge from outside the time domain. Uh, you've got a very, very, you've, you've demonstrated a property that no other book on the planet Earth has, uh, this, super, this demonstrable supernatural origin. Not a claim, a demonstration. The central theme is that the Old Testament is the account of a nation, the New Testament is the account of a man. The Creator became a man, His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us, and He's alive now. And our most exalted privilege is to know Him. That's what the Bible is really all about, is to know Him. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 